This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This is the Science Podcast for December 8th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. This week, we have two stories on thinking and learning in animals. First, we have online news editor, David Grimm. He's going to take us to Northern Germany, where researchers are studying cognition in farm animals, cows, pigs, goats, and so on. And because producer Kevin Kainers went along, we have lots of audio from the trip. So prepare yourself for moves and more. Next, freelance producer, Catherine Irving, talks with researcher Claire Spottiswood about the mutually beneficial relationship between birds called honey guides and honey hunting humans. It turns out the calls used by people to get the birds attention in order for them to work together on a collaborative honey hunt may have co-evolved differently from place to place, depending on where the honey hunt is happening. I've never been so nervous in my life. It was one of these, uh, which one doesn't belong games, which the goat was solving with no difficulty. And every time the goat gets it right, the reward is, is some drinking water. You know, I'm looking, I'm staring at the screen. I'm not seeing any differences between the four images. I'm starting to sweat. David, you can check out which picture gives you water. <laughs> they look quite similar. Yeah. Are you smarter than a goat? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I worry about that. So if you're really smart, you need four tries yeah. to really check out. Huh. And these are images of goats? Like face-on images of goats, so four <laughs> goat heads. Okay, so we should, oh, but he keeps on moving, uh, moving around. Let's see, so. Yeah. That was the right one. Ah, yeah, I'm perfect. as smart as a goat. <laughs> And then finally I picked up, you know, all the goats had sort of these yellow tags on their ears. Oh my gosh, you cheated like an AI. You're right. like looking at tags instead of faces. I've never been so happy to get a squirt of water in my whole life. <laughs> that was our online news editor, David Grimm, describing the harrowing experience of facing off against a goat in an experiment where you're supposed to tell goat faces apart on a screen. This experience was part of a trip he took to Northern Germany where he visited researchers studying cognition in farm animals like goats, pigs, and cows. To better transport us there, he brought along freelance audio producer Kevin Kaners. They went to the facility, they met the animals, and the researchers, who were looking into how the minds of livestock work and why we don't know much about the way these types of animals think. 
Dave, you've been to a lot of research animal facilities, you know, places where people study mice, places where chimps have retired, even places where people have studied cats. How is visiting this farm animal cognition facility different from all these other places that we've talked about before? You know, what stuck out to you? Definitely had never been that close and personal uh, with pigs and goats and cows before. Yeah. This facility that I visited, which is the, the Research Institute for Farm Animal Biology, we called FBN for short, which is in Dummersdorf, Germany. It's probably the biggest place in the world that is studying uh, farm animal cognition. It's also got probably the largest variety of animals, lots of scientists studying these guys. It doesn't really look like a research institute, and it doesn't really look like a farm. It kind of looks like a cross between the two. I almost stepped in a giant pile of horse poop, which doesn't <laughs> doesn't happen on your average research campus. These are all animals that we've domesticated for livestock purposes, like for food, for labor, for millennia. Why don't we know that much about how their brains work? Why don't we know that cows could be potty trained? Right, right. <laughs> Until recently. This is probably one of the reasons I was sort of most fascinated with the story. It's estimated we've lived with goats for 10,000 years, which would make them the animal we've lived with the longest, except for dogs. Dogs may be 20,000 years. So these aren't creatures that we've only been living with for a few decades. We've been living with them for thousands and thousands of years. And yet most people, even today, don't really stop to think about how these animals think. Do we know why? You know, these kinds of animals, livestock animals, haven't really been the subject of much cognitive research. Depends who you talk to, but certainly some of the people I spoke to think the reason is, is because we don't want to think about how these animals think. Oh, we don't no. want to know, you know, if cows are smart or pigs feel pain or they feel terror or goats have this very sophisticated sort of conception of their world, then what does it mean for the way that we house them, especially on factory farms? And so there's the dismissive attitude of, well, of course, these animals don't think, let's not even bother trying to figure that out, which I think is what a lot of scientists have had up until recently is why would you even bother studying a goat or a pig? It's a complete waste of time. What are some of the broad questions that people working in cognition at this facility, what are they trying to figure out about these animals? Well, you know, it really runs the gamut. Some of them are fairly basic questions about emotions. Can these animals feel happy or sad? Can they feel optimistic or pessimistic? Can they make friends? And then much more complicated questions such as, what is their memory like? How long can they remember things? Can they do some of the things that uh, dogs have been shown to do? When we point at an object, dogs, they really know what that point means. They know that we're trying to show them something, you know, mm -hmm. and chimpanzees can't do that. And so it's really remarkable that dogs can. It's this really sort of complex test of social intelligence. And the question is, can farm animals do that? I kind of want to step through the three main animals that you got to meet when you were there. Let's actually start with cows. What else are people trying to learn about cows in this facility? And how easy is it to study these really large animals in a research setting. Yeah, and that really gets to the challenges. I mean, these animals can be huge. These are also animals that are often used to being in herds. And so typically when we conduct a scientific experiment, we separate the animals because we want to study them by themselves. And that's fairly easy to do with most of the lab animals we work with. But when you get to animals that have evolved to live in large herds, when you separate them, they get really nervous and it can take a really long time 
to get them comfortable enough to participate in an experiment. So Dave, I really thought that we would hear a ton of mooing and cow noise in the background of your visit to this barn. You know, and there is some cow noise, like a light moo here and there, and some barn equipment noises for sure. But actually, one of the researchers pointed out that it's better that the cows are not actually saying a lot. Normally, the, the cows do not vocalize so much when they are in the barn because if there is no special action or no frustrating events or nothing, then they don't have any need to vocalize. In case you separate a cow from the herd and put it in a restricted area for certain reasons, then they will start to vocalize because they don't like it to be separated from the herd. The cows that I looked at, you know, they had done some experiments with potty training. Oh yeah, I remember. We did a whole segment on potty training cows. This team's also looking at friendship in cows. Do cows form friends with each other? Are there cows that other cows prefer to hang out with? Are there cows that cows don't prefer to hang out with? And what does that say about what they're thinking about themselves and kind of their social structure? I'm Anne-Catherine Pahl. I'm a doctoral student, so I'm doing my PhD here at BFBN in the project uh, which we called Cow Friends. <laughs> so the motivation of our project Cow Friends is to find close social bonds or even friendships in dairy cows. We already know that many species of animals have close social bonds or friendships. We already know that friendships in animals can decrease stress levels. We know that animals that are well integrated into their group have increased birth rates and that friendships between animals can even increase the life expectancy of the animals. And those nice findings are not sufficiently studied in dairy cows, so we don't know if cows have friends yet. And that's mostly going to be answered by getting a sense of where they're spending their that's time. That's the first step. And then we want to see whether those cows that are spending much time together are uh, alleviating the stress better than other cows. And how will you measure stress? We are collecting saliva samples and measuring cortisol. We're also measuring oxytocin, heart rate and heart rate variability, and the behavior, of course. The cows are wearing these collars that have GPS and does real-time tracking of where they are. You can see it there on the lane, a black cow. And those are located by the sensors every 1.7 seconds so that we can have a precise picture of what the cows are doing during the day. And the research can figure out, are there cows, specific cows that cows like hanging out with? And then what happens if we separate these cows? And the team's found that when they reunite some of these cows, that they start grooming each other and following each other around, kind of like they're oh. cow besties, you know? Yeah. This particular study is still kind of in its early stages, but there does seem to be some preliminary evidence that there are, if you know, we call it friendship, but you know, at the very least, there are preferences these cows have and sort of who they hang out with. Now, the researcher we're going to hear from in a minute is an applied ethologist. He studies the behavior of animals in their natural environment. And in the case of cows, we're talking the barn or farm. But we're also going to talk about natural herd behavior, you know, which gets to the question of whether or not cows have friends. And so the next step is how much of this herd behavior and how much of their natural farm behavior needs to be taken into account to keep these animals happy and productive. My name is Jan Langbein and I'm the supervisor of this, within this project. And uh, I planned the experiments here we are doing now on, on social cohesion in the groups of cattle. If the farmer knows which of the cattle in a group 
are affiliated to each other. Yes. If a cow has to change the group, it might be better to transfer them with their best friend to make it easier for the cow to integrate in the other group. Because as we know from humans, it's quite easier if you come to a, a different social society or group, if you have a friend with you or a companion. There are some studies that suggest that cows that are more stressed out, that are quote unquote less happy, might be more prone to disease, kind of like we are, might give less milk. And so for a farmer, it's not just a question of like, I want my cows to be happy yeah. uh, or less stressed out. Even if you're just sort of thinking about the bottom line of how much milk or meat or whatever you're going to get out of these animals, it might also behoove you to try to make these animals as happy as you can. Dave also took a trip to the pig barn and he complained a lot about the smells. He saw a pig voluntarily running on a treadmill and also learned about piglet empathy experiments. But besides being really big eventually and hard to manage in that way, pigs are also very smell-oriented both ways. You know, they smell, but they also pay more attention to the sense of smell. They're just not very visual animals, which behavioral biologist Christian Narut realized when he started with pigs, but eventually made the switch to goats. Pigs do not focus uh, a lot on the visual sense, so it's really hard to actually attract them and let them pay attention to something visual going on in front of them. And this was something really different for the goats, so it was really easy to lure them and to have them isolated and test them in isolation. And this was basically the point where, where I figured, okay, this, if you want to do something visual, if you want to provide the animals with a choice where they can choose something on the left or the right side, goats are a perfect species for that because they pay a lot of visual attention to what you're doing. With goats, the thing isn't, isn't so much how much they smell, it's how much noise that they make. The sound comes from the males who attack the wall that separates them from the male in the other box. They won't fight. And as they are not able to make direct contact, they fight the walls, yeah. But normally they are really cute, especially the ladies, because they were all in former experiments. Ah, okay. So they are quite happy to aid it. Well, not to foreigners, right? Huh? Come on. Come here, come, 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 come. Yeah. This guy is sort of staring at me right yes. now, right? It's like they just stare at you and you think, okay, I mean, I'm, at like, some oh, point I probably get boring, but no, they just look at you all the time. Right. Which also makes them a good species if you do some visual cognitive paradigms, because they, they yeah, you see, they, they pay a lot of attention. Goats are a good model species in terms of just being goats and doing their goat stuff, but also they can, they can be used to translate it a little bit and see what ruminant species in general do. We do not know a lot about goats. So basically Jan and uh, maybe two or three other people in the world or groups in the world that had done some goat research at that point. So there was still a lot to discover, a lot to do with the goats. Um, and uh, this makes them like a unique experience. It's like um, you're having a feeling of um, exploring the species and actually being able to, to grasp what they're capable of and um, how they perceive the environment. The goats especially have been really important for a lot of visual type research. You know, we talked about this, these pointing studies that the researchers are doing with goats where they've actually found that goats also respond to pointing, not quite as well as dogs, but certainly better than chimpanzees do. And so that's pretty remarkable considering that the idea with dogs is, you know, they're so attuned to our social cues because they've evolved so closely with us for 20,000 years and we've so heavily domesticated them to be companions and helpers. And of course, they're going to understand our social cues. 
One of the amazing things that goats can do is they can look at screens with images on them and tell, you know, if it's goat faces, if it's human faces, they can tell them apart. These researchers have come up with a way for them, for the goats to convey that. It's almost like the goats have like an iPad or something. <laughs> Normally, if you want to study learning behavior in animals, you have a group of animals or single animals in the normal housing environment, takes them out and brings them into the experimental environment where you present the learning task. And it's totally different here. We bring the learning task into the normal housing conditions of the animals. The learning computer we installed here is part of their normal pen where they live all the time. They've got these computer screens, these thin computer screens in their enclosures that are on uh, sometimes 24 hours a day and they're just flashing different pictures. Sometimes there's like four pictures of goats and they all look almost identical, but there's one tiny difference and the goats have to sort of figure out which one is different. Sometimes it's like a memory game where goats are presented with a whole series of images and they have to remember the order, which they can do sometimes weeks later. In one case, they remembered the sequence of 24 different images, I, I believe up to maybe a month or so later. I definitely cannot remember images in order that long after it happened. But just to change the topic for a second here, when you did your goat facial recognition test, you were rewarded with water. But water is not the only treat these goats get. There's also this very special carb. Yes, <laughs> they get dried pasta. I think it's dried penne pasta. And apparently they love it. Take one of this and he will even come up to you. So just, just, yeah, just, just one. one. And, yep. and hold it and, and... <laughs> yeah, they, it. they come up to you. <laughs> it's like uh, potato chips. Yeah, exactly. yeah something <laughs> like that. And, you know, above all the sounds I heard the goats making, one of the most constant ones was this crunching sound. While much of the research at FBN that we've talked about so far has really focused on getting a deeper understanding of livestock cognition, how their brains work, looking at emotions, perception of the world, uh, there's also research that is trying to fold, you know, this new understanding of the animal's capabilities into ways of improving conditions of livestock outside the laboratory setting. Dave, what are some of the things that might change if this research influences or reaches farmers or even regulators? It might influence how farmers sort of separate or don't separate their cows. For the goats, we're talking about chimpanzees or even lab animals. We talk about enrichment, this idea that it may not be good for them mentally to sort of be sitting in these barren enclosures all day with nothing to do and nothing to play with or nothing to figure out. And these goats, you know, there's been some studies to show that even if they don't have to play with these things to get food or treats, they do it anyways. And so there's some sort of enrichment. There's some sort of pleasure in just trying to figure out a puzzle. And so one could imagine on a farm, maybe touch screens are right, not right around the corner, but this idea that giving these animals something to figure out to get their food. This is done often with zoo animals now where they have to use these puzzle feeders even to get their, their meals. Do you think farmers already know some of this stuff that the researchers aren't just now learning? Well, I think they do. And actually, that's something that one of the scientists, uh, Jan, uh, told me was that he, he thought, especially younger farmers, not only do they know this stuff, but some of them are actually very receptive, especially on the smaller farms, to 
whether it's enrichment or other things, really, really acknowledging that these animals aren't just production units, but that they have these sort of inner mental and emotional lives that sort of need to be nourished. I was trained, I, I was a trainee as, as, as a cattle breeder 30, 40 years ago, okay, maybe more. And, and at that time, nobody talked about animal welfare or how do they feel or do they have emotions and have the personality. Nobody had asked this question at that time. Now we have heated water beds for piglets and we have brushes in the barn for the cattle to feel better and they use it a lot. Even that the animals are now allowed to move freely in the barn. Nobody uses tie stalls anymore. All this is progression in a sense of higher welfare for the animals. But it goes step by step and sometimes not so fast as we wish. Okay, Dave, what's next for this field of farm animal cognition? What other questions are out there and what kinds of experiments would these researchers like to do? Well, you know, now that we've got artificial intelligence, which could sort of help with trying to figure out where these animals spend time and who they spend time with, eye tracking technology, which is intriguing, but also difficult. Goat eyes are really kind of on the side of their head, you know, and the eye tracking technology we've got right now is is for animals, mostly humans, that have our eyes in the front of our head, right? That's really interesting. There's also plans in the works by these researchers to somewhat follow the path that dogs have taken. You know, we've learned a lot about dogs in the last decade by using MRIs and doing other kinds of puzzle studies, eye gaze studies. We basically know a lot about these so-called smart animals, dogs, chimps, and dolphins. But we're really just getting started with goats. So moving in that direction, like what do the animals expect when they see a situation popping up here? What do they anticipate? And this will also, for example, not only inform us about goat behavior or goat biology, but also how we interact with these animals. So how do they see humans? Can they anticipate human behavior? And if they can, we should adapt our own behavior to their abilities. Super interesting. You know, most of the goats I've interacted with have definitely given off kind of a wily vibe. I really hope you enjoyed your trip, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the online news editor for Science. You can find a link to the story and related photos at science.org slash podcast. And special thanks to Kevin Kaners for all the wonderful audio that he captured for us. Up next, stay tuned for a conversation between producer Catherine Irving and researcher Claire Spottiswood about how honey guide birds communicate with honey hunting humans in different parts of Africa. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. <laughs> Finding a beehive in a tall, dense forest is a bit like finding a needle in a haystack. That is to say, it's pretty hard. Across Africa, however, people from dozens of different regions have found a better way. Wild birds called honey guides that lead them to their prize. This week in science, Claire Spottiswood and her colleagues report a new discovery about this fascinating human-animal relationship 
that could indicate a cultural connection across species. Hi, Claire. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So your paper focuses on the relationship between these honey hunters and these honey guides. What exactly is a honey guide? There are specific species of bird, is that right? Yes, the honey guides are a, are a family of wax-eating birds that live in Africa and Asia that are most closely related to woodpeckers. They're in the passiform order, and they're unassumingly drab and, and mostly quite inconspicuous, but they do have some really remarkable interactions with other species. Fascinating. I didn't know they were so closely related to woodpeckers. What benefit does this bird get from helping people, and, and how does that relationship work exactly? What honey guides get out of the relationship is wax, because one of the many odd things about honey guides is that they have the ability to digest wax and obtain energy uh, from it. It's a, it's a really calorie-rich food if you have that ability. So honey guides um, have a shared interest with human honey hunters in, in bees' nests. Honey guides are brilliant at finding bees' nests concealed in trees, uh, but they can't get at the wax, whereas human honey hunters aren't nearly as good as honey guides at finding bees' nests, but they have the ability to subdue the bees with smoke and open their nests with axes. So by working together, the, the two species can both find and access bees' nests in an exchange of information for skills. Got it. So each of the different species has a trait that the other one lacks that helps them work together. That's exactly right. They're perfectly complementary. That's so cool. And uh, who initiates these collaborative work usually? Is it the bird that initiates or is it the person that initiates? Your question highlights how communication is crucial because honey guides use chattering calls to attract the attention of, of humans and, and show them the way to a bee's nest. Sometimes you'll be walking through the bush and a honey guide will, will appear out of nowhere and use these strident chattering calls to attract your attention and indicate to you that it wants to cooperate and it's got a bee's nest to show you. People do also actively initiate cooperation by using specialized calls to signal that they're looking for a bird with whom to cooperate and also to maintain the bird's attention as they move together through the landscape in pursuit of a bee's nest. What's remarkable about these specialized human calls is, is that they vary culturally across Africa. So uh, in some places, people use beautiful whistle melodies to attract honey guides, whereas in others, they use other kinds of whistles made with instruments such as snail shells or dried fruit. And in other places still, people use various vocal trills and grunts and whoops and even sometimes words. So at any one location, people will use just one or a few signals, but the signals they use differ among locations according to different human cultures. Fascinating. And do you know how long these sort of interactions have been evolving? Like how long has this relationship existed? It's an excellent question. And of course, one that really intrigues us. It's possible that this relationship is extremely ancient. So the two traits that make us particularly helpful and complementary collaborators to, to honey guides, which are the, the use of fire to produce smoke to subdue the bees and the use of tools to open their nest and expose the honey and the wax, are skills that are even more ancient than our own species. They most likely precede modern humans and evolved in the region of 1.5 million years ago uh, to over 3 million years ago in the case of tool use. So it's entirely possible that human honey guide interactions have been occurring every day for even longer than we've been human. So you have some recordings of these calls between the honey guides and the honey hunters. So if we could go ahead and listen to those now. So why don't you walk me through sort of what's happening in this clip, what we're hearing? 
Well, you'll have heard two very distinctive sounds on that clip. One is the chattering of a of an adult female greater honey guide who's chatting <laughs> to a Hadza honey hunter named Margola Humdungai. Uh, and Margola has attracted this bird by giving a whistle melody much like the one that you heard him doing in, in the clip. And he and the honey guide are following each other through the bush in pursuit of the bee's nest. So the bird is flying on ahead, giving that chattering call, and Margola is responding a whistled melody that serves at this particular point in the hunt to reassure the bird that he's following and to maintain its attention. That's amazing. And uh, you mentioned earlier that these calls vary regionally and geographically. And your paper actually argues that these honey guides can tell the difference between them and that they'll respond better to some calls than others. So what made you consider that these birds could differentiate those sounds in the first place? So we knew from our, our past work that at least at one location in Mozambique, honey guides do seem to respond appropriately to the local signal that's given to them uh, by, in that case, Yao honey hunters. And our experiments there confirmed what honey hunters already know, which is that honey guides are more likely to come and invite you to cooperate if you make the local signal. But what we didn't know is how honey guides would respond to a foreign signal that's used to attract honey guides in another part of Africa. So if honey guides learn to recognize the local signals just as honey hunters learn to produce them, then we'd expect honey guides to respond strongly to local signals, but weakly to foreign signals. But alternatively, there might be something about these sounds that's just intrinsically attractive to honey guides by appealing to some bias in their sensory systems such that they'd respond strongly to signals from other parts of Africa too. Mm -hmm. Got it. So you're wondering whether the honey guides were responding to the call because it was naturally intriguing or whether it's because they had learned the specific call of the local area and, and had learned that that was the one that they should respond to. Exactly, yes. So you traveled to Tanzania and Mozambique to conduct what you call simulation honey hunts, which is where you would play these different human sounds and, and see how the birds would respond. So what was that experience like? Yes, it was a real joy. <laughs> Both of those places are very close to our hearts as researchers. The beautiful uh, and vast uh, Nyasa Special Reserve in uh, the north Mozambique, where Yao honey hunters attract honey guides with their specialized sound, which is a loud trill followed by a grunt. And the second site was Kidera Hills in the north of Tanzania, where Hadza honey hunters attract honey guides with the beautiful whistled melody that you heard on the clip a moment ago. And uh, in both of these places, we as researchers have had the privilege of being inspired by and collaborating closely with resident honey hunters for many years now. So what exactly did you do to try and test these different calls? What was your day-to-day -day routine like? We predetermined the start points of around 75 transects at each location. And then when we would reach by car, the start point of a transect, we would randomly allocate a treatment type to that particular simulated honey hunting trip. And these three treatments were either the, the local honey hunting call, a foreign honey hunting call, or a control sound, which was an arbitrary human sound. We would then walk through the bush in as straight a line as we could, given the patches of dense bush and the occasional incident with elephants causing a bit of a, a bit of a dog leg. <laughs> and then we would play back that one sound type on a loop on a calibrated speaker and then listen very carefully as we walked for honey guides coming to guide us. And on all of these walks, we were accompanied by two honey hunters from the local honey hunting community who were charged with telling us as soon as they heard a honey guide, which of course they're extremely attuned to detecting. From this experiment, you write that, at least in Tanzania, these honey guides are more than three times more likely to respond to the sound of the local honey guide calls than to either the, the foreign calls or any random human sounds that you played. That must have been pretty significant to, to find. 
It's almost uncanny, uh, <laughs> especially in Tanzania, where, where we hadn't done this kind of experiment before and where the pattern was so very strong. It was, it really, yes, uncanny is really the best word I can use to describe it. These Hadza cooperating honey guys were really barely interested in the foreign brrrm signal from Mozambique and also not all that interested in control human sounds either. So that evidence really did strongly rule out the idea that these signals are intrinsically attractive to honey guide in any particular way. And instead would appear to support the idea that honey guides learn the local signals just as humans do. So in summary, our data really best support the hypothesis that just as humans learn the local traditional honey hunting calls of their own culture, so too do honey guides. That's amazing. It really reflects on the, the ability of at least this bird species to kind of learn behavior and learn to hear these calls. And, and yeah, it's fascinating to think about how they do that, whether they're growing up hearing those sounds and knowing that, or whether they have to learn over time, each of them individually. It is really intriguing. And one of the reasons that it's intriguing is that while people typically learn the local honey hunting signals from their fathers, this is what we're consistently told in many honey hunting communities in Africa, we can be pretty sure that honey guides aren't doing that though, because they never knowingly meet their own parents. They breed parasites like cuckoos and cowbirds, so they're raised by other species that don't have any such relationship with humans. So their own chattering guiding calls are, are, are very similar across Africa. Those aspects of the behavior we think are innate to the greater honey guide as a species. But their understanding of the local human calls could be learned through some combination of personal experience, but also perhaps watching other more experienced honey guides and acquiring them through social learning. So you mentioned in, in the paper that your findings reinforce this concept that you write about called cultural co-evolution. So could you kind of explain what that is and how it applies to the honey guides and the honey hunters that you've been studying? Yes. So our findings we feel are consistent with the idea that learned adaptations in different species can, can reciprocally influence and reinforce each other in a way that's in many ways akin to genetic co-evolution between species. So in genetic co-evolution, genetically inherited adaptations in different species reciprocally influence each other. And this can lead to rapid genetic um, evolution and the shaping of some of the most beautiful adaptations that we see in nature. But in cultural co-evolution, instead of genetic adaptations reciprocally influencing and reinforcing each other, we may have learned and in many cases culturally inherited adaptations in different species that reciprocally influence and reinforce each other. What's striking about this process is, is that it can lead to mutual adaptation on a, on a very rapid timescale. It is much faster than genetic co-evolution, but also that just as traditional genetic co-evolution can drive genetic biodiversity as species interact. So perhaps such a process of cultural co-evolution could drive cultural biodiversity. And this is an idea that we'd love to investigate more fully in future. That's a really interesting concept, especially that it applies to people. Because you know, usually when we think of sort of human relationships with animals, we think about domestication where the animal is kind of under the control of the person and we specifically breed that animal to, to want to work with us. But in this case, it's a wild animal that has chosen to work with people. So it's this reminder that we're not necessarily above the ecosystem. We're still very much involved with these relationships. It's really kind of amazing to see that still happening in, in our world. You've put your finger on it there that what's remarkable about this form of cooperation is that it's evolved through natural selection, not through coercion or training or domestication, like most of the other examples of humans and other animals communicating with each other. This has evolved because it provides a mutual benefit to both species, not one species exploiting the other through these these various means. Yeah, that's that's kind of amazing and, and wonderful to see that there's this relationship. 
that can still occur. What do you hope that your research does for people's understanding of these human-animal relationships as a whole and about the honey-guide-honey hunter relationship? In a world in which we're often hearing about the innumerable forms of conflict between humans and nature, I really hope that this research will help others to share some of the, the joy and awe that you just expressed that such positive and cooperative relationships between humans and nature can also exist and highlight how we humans are an integral part of the ecosystems in which we ourselves evolved. In addition, I think an appreciation for the cultural richness that's woven into such relationships will make us value every one of the remaining examples of cooperation between honey guides and a variety of human cultures across Africa and ensure that we as a society do what's required to ensure that these relationships can continue in a rapidly changing world that's quickly bearing down on them. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Claire. Thanks very much. Claire Spottiswood is an evolutionary biologist at the University of Cambridge and the University of Cape Town. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on podcasting apps, search for Science Magazine. Or you can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Special thanks to Kevin Kaners for his work on the Farm Animal Cognition segment, and of course, Catherine Irving for her lovely Honey Guide interview. Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.